A miracle in and of itself will never convince someone to believe. It takes a sovereign act of God's grace, saying, let there be light in a dark heart. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled, Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord? Imagine, if you will, that you're a first-century Jew, awaiting with great anticipation and expectation the promised Messiah, a Savior who would overthrow Roman rule and authority through military might and power, and reestablish once and for all the kingdom of Israel. Imagine holding these expectations, then hearing and witnessing the teaching and miracles of Jesus of Nazareth. Something is different about this man. He claims to be the Messiah, yet he's not acting as expected. Even his family and close friends are confused and conflicted. It is this tension and uncertainty that Tom will explore today from Mark chapter 3. So friend, let's join our teacher right now as we learn more about Jesus here on The Word Unleashed. I have just been personally amazed at the stark contrast between the choices that are ours about the claims of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of the context briefly. After Jesus' appointment to the 12 to be his official representatives on earth, we saw in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and following, Mark skips forward. He skips a lot of things that happened in the ministry of Christ, including his most famous sermon and a number of other activities, and he skips forward to one of the longest, most significant days in Jesus' life and ministry. The three synoptics together record that on that one day, all of these things transpired. Jesus healed a demon-possessed man in the morning. He taught at a home there in Capernaum, probably Peter's home. An accusation was made against him by the Pharisees that he was, in fact, in league with Satan. He teaches on that day all of the parables that are in Matthew 13. He explains several of them privately to his disciples back in the house. They take a trip across the Sea of Galilee, during which, because of the busyness of the day, he falls asleep. A storm comes up. He calms the storm. And then when he and the disciples arrive on the other side, he heals the demoniacs. And, of course, you know that one of them is famous, Legion. And the demons go into the pigs, and they rush into the sea. All of that on a single day. And during the morning of that day, several very important events occur. And those events are recorded for us in Mark chapter 3. Let me read for you again what Mark writes, beginning in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, And Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, as you can see from just that reading of the text, this passage breaks into three scenes. The first scene in the first two verses, Jesus' family leaves Nazareth with the mission of heading to Capernaum to bring Jesus back to Nazareth. In the middle section, verses 22 to 30, the Pharisees attack Jesus on that same morning that his family leaves to bring him home. And then at the end of the passage, the closing section, the closing scene, verses 31 to 35, Jesus' family arrives at the house where he's been teaching. And Jesus, in the context of that, makes some very remarkable statements. Now, what's remarkable to me about this section and these, this one story really woven together into a single story is that in those three scenes, we are brought face to face with the only three possible responses to Jesus' claims to be God. And they're always the same choices. I reminded you of them last time. Either his claims were false, and as you can see on the left-hand side of this chart, if his claims are false, then either he knew they were false, in which case he was a hypocrite and a liar of the worst order, or his claims were false and he didn't know they were false, in which case he was sincere, but he was a sincerely deluded lunatic. The only other possibility, and it really is the only other possibility, is that his claims were true, he knew them to be true, and he is in fact the Lord of glory, God incarnate. What Mark wants us to see by weaving those three choices through this passage is that every person who reads his gospel, every person who reads this section must make a choice as to what to do with Jesus' remarkable claims. We are forced to answer the question, each one of us, which group do we belong to? Last time we saw the response of Jesus' brothers. Even though they'd grown up in the same home with him, they concluded that he was, in fact, a deluded lunatic. Verse 20 says, and he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that he could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, the most likely meaning here of his own people 
refers to Jesus' own immediate family, especially his four brothers. And Mary comes along, as we mentioned last time, probably not believing, believing that he was some sort of deluded lunatic, but concerned about him. He's not eating, wondering what's going on, confused, even as John the Baptist, who knew who Jesus was, later in the ministry of Jesus, was confused and sent word, are you the one we're to be expecting? So there was confusion because Jesus wasn't living up to what they expected the Messiah to be and to do. But in Jesus' brother's case, they came to take him. Verse 21 says, they went out to take custody of him. And the word to take custody is used in a number of places in Mark's gospel to arrest. They went out to arrest Jesus. They left Nazareth, went the several hours journey to Capernaum to bring Jesus back by force to Nazareth. Why? For they were saying he has lost his senses. He's lost his mind. He's not thinking or behaving rationally. He's unbalanced. But before Jesus' family can get from Nazareth to Capernaum to take him home for his own sake and for the sake of the family's reputation, an even more troubling accusation than insanity is leveled at Jesus. And this accusation comes from his enemies. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of being a demonic liar, a demonic liar. The second part of the story unfolds in and just outside the home where Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. Possibly it's Peter's home there, we just don't know for sure. But let's, let's march through this second scene in the story. Jesus' family now, you have to understand what's happening. Jesus' family's made the decision They're heading to Capernaum from Nazareth. They're coming to get him. They arrive later on this same day while he's still teaching in the same house. But in the meantime, something else transpires. There are some false accusations made against Jesus. Notice verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Notice, first of all, this group that we haven't yet met. These men are new to the story. They're described as scribes who came down from Jerusalem. We know who the scribes are. We've already met them. It was the group in Israel who were specialists in in copying and in teaching the law. They were mostly Pharisees. And Jesus had already encountered this group but not this group, because notice these scribes are described as those who came down from Jerusalem. Now, that's an interesting phrase, by the way. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, that phrase makes, or excuse me, to Israel, that phrase makes sense, because Jerusalem, while it is south of Galilee, where Jesus is, it sits in the hill country at about 2,400 feet above sea level. Galilee, on the other hand, is in the great continental rift and sits at 600 feet below sea level. So from Jerusalem, you go down to Galilee, even though it's north. So they went down. These men have come from Jerusalem on a mission. They are legal specialists sent from the capital. You see, Jesus' ministry was causing a stir even as far away as the politically elite down in Jerusalem. So far, Jesus' opposition has been mostly local. The local religious leaders there in Galilee. But these men 
come from Jerusalem. They would, would have been high up in the religious echelons of Judaism. They would have been highly educated, experts in the Jewish law, and they were influential representatives of the most powerful leaders in the nation. Don't discount who these guys were. They would have been the group that were the up-and-comers, the future of the leadership of the nation, and they come on a mission. But folks, they obviously have not come on a balanced fact-finding mission because they immediately come out with these outrageous allegations. He is possessed by Beelzebul. He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, what would have forced such intelligent, educated men to have so quickly come to that conclusion? Well, to really understand it, what really sparked their accusations, you have to turn back to Matthew's account. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. This will explain why they had to come up with that conclusion. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. This is that same morning before this encounter we've just read. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now watch what happens in verse 23. In response to this miracle, all the crowds were amazed and they were saying, and notice this is something that's kind of a stir. They're talking to each other. This is continually repeated. They were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is it possible that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah? The religious leaders from the capital are there, and they're left with only one choice. Notice verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, when they heard people saying, maybe he's the Messiah, that's when they respond with this outrageous accusation. This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, when you look back at Mark, you'll notice that they really level two accusations against Jesus. And again, you'll notice in Mark's account, it says in verse 22, they were saying. The idea again in the Greek language is that this was something they were sort of sowing here and there. They would talk to this person and say, you know, this is really what's going on in Jesus' ministry. They'd talk to this person and, and again, repeat the story time after time. This was their repeated line. In the words of one commentator, it was a sustained campaign of vilification. They are after Jesus because people are saying he might be the Messiah. And so in response to that, they make two accusations. The first one is he is possessed by Beelzebul. Sometimes this name is copied from the Latin Vulgate, maybe you've seen it, where it's rendered Beelzebub, but it's Beelzebul. It, we really don't know for sure what this name means. There are a couple of possibilities. One is that it's sort of an intentional slur or corruption of the name Beelzebub, the god of Ekron and the Philistines in the Old Testament, whose name meant Lord of the Flies, and it was corrupted to mean <laughs> Lord of the Dung, all right, in polite language. And so they're basically using this name as a slur against Satan. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that it simply means Lord of the Dwelling, that is, Lord of the Dwelling of Evil Spirits, 
And that makes sense, perhaps, because of the story Jesus is about to tell of the strong man's house. We just don't know. We can't be sure what the name itself means, but we can be sure to whom it refers. Look at verse 22. Notice he says, or they say, Beelzebul, and they they identify him as the ruler of the demons. And when Jesus responds in verse 23, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? So there is no question who they intended. They were clearly accusing Jesus of being personally inhabited by and controlled by, indwelt by Satan himself. Jesus, they said, is possessed by the devil. That was their explanation for what happened that morning. The second accusation is similar but unique. He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now note here, folks, that they cannot deny that a miracle has taken place. A a miracle has happened. The demon has been cast out. The man can now see and speak. And so they can't deny that, so they're left with only two options, right? Very simply, either they have to admit that it was of God or accuse Jesus of collusion with the devil because those are the only two powers great enough to accomplish this. So they don't want to give in to the first because if they do, what will the people conclude? He's the Messiah. They can't go there, and so they try to undermine his teaching and authority by attributing his miracles to Satan. It is a deliberate perversion of the truth. You say, why would these religious leaders deliberately distort the truth about Jesus? Well, later, you remember, Pilate makes it very clear. Matthew says, Pilate knew that because of envy, the religious leaders had handed Jesus over. This was all about power. This was all about who was in control, who was in authority. As you're going to see in a moment, they knew this wasn't true. But it's what they had to spend in order to keep people from continuing that line, maybe this is the Messiah. When they said this, when they said he is possessed by Beelzebul, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons, you know what they're really saying? They're saying, this man is a liar. He's presenting himself as this righteous, religious man, you know, a a law-abiding Jew, but it's not true. He is not looking out for your best interest. Instead, he's got another agenda. He's in league with Satan to accomplish it. And when he appears to cast out demons, he's got exactly the opposite agenda of what he's telling you. He is a hypocrite, a liar. He is demonically influenced. He is a wicked man. Now, what's ironic about that is Compare that to what the demons themselves said about Jesus. You remember back in Mark chapter 1? When they encountered Jesus, the demons were saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So they were calling Jesus a lying hypocrite who was possessed by the devil himself. Jesus, they said, is a demonic liar. That was the accusation. Now, Jesus responds to this in the next section. You see Jesus' refutation here in verses 23 to 27, and he does this, he makes several points here to refute their description. First of all, he identifies 
the illogical conclusion to which they've come. He says it's ridiculous. It makes no sense. He begins in verse 23 by calling them to himself. Now that's a very interesting expression, isn't it? He called them to himself. The clear implication is that these scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem were talking behind Jesus' back, just out of earshot. Either they were somewhere else in Peter's house or just outside on the street, sort of sowing their discord around the edges. Matthew 12, 25 tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. And so as Jesus often did, while he didn't hear directly what they said, he knew their thoughts and he chose to confront them straight on and so he calls them to him. Verse 23 continues by saying, and he began speaking to them in parables, saying, how can Satan cast out Satan? By the way, just as an aside, there are those who are in the larger scope of Christianity who claim that there is no personal devil, there is no personal being called Satan, there are no personal beings called demons. Jesus here and in so many places affirms the existence and personality of Satan and demons. Now, Jesus accused the scribes here of being illogical, and then he gives two hypothetical illustrations to sort of uh, make this point. First of all, verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Jesus says, listen, what's happening between me and Satan is not a manner of a kingdom that is divided, but of rival kingdoms at war. Verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So these are two illustrations to make the point. This doesn't mean there can't be some infighting in a household or in a kingdom. His point is, it is utterly opposed to common sense to purposefully try to build a kingdom while attacking the people within your kingdom. It is against common sense to try to build a house while attacking the people within that house. It doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. Jesus' conclusion then in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. The bottom line is to shoot your own soldiers is to risk losing your reign. It would be irrational for Satan to do this, and it was illogical for them to suggest it. That's Jesus' first response. It's ridiculous. There's a second part of his refutation, and that is he condemns the double standard. Now, we learn about this part of Jesus' response not from Mark, but from Matthew. Matthew inserts this little line in the middle of what Jesus is saying. Matthew 12, 27, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. There were in the first century many instances of supposed Jewish exorcisms around the time of Christ. By the way, Jesus doesn't say here that they actually cast them out, only that they claim to have cast them out. But his point is, your sons are casting out demons, I'm casting out demons, you're using a double standard to judge me. Why don't you say your sons are casting them out by Satan? Obviously then, Jesus is saying, you're not unbiased in your conclusion.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, or Lord. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we'd love it if you join us then. Well, Tom, for many believers, following Jesus means rejection from friends and family, doesn't it? It often does. I mean, Jesus himself said that he came not to bring peace, but a sword that would divide families, not because of his desire, but because of the antagonism against him and his message. And we still see that today. And of course, the ultimate rejection of Christ was what he experienced as he hung on the cross, the ultimate rejection and separation. The good news is that we Although we experience that same rejection by the world that rejected him, we find comfort in identifying with him. He understands our experience of rejection. He experienced it himself, and he's able to comfort us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we'd love to hear from you. If you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.